0: Welcome to Reading with Joy. This summer, we're reading Piranesi by Susanna Clark, a book about a man who lives in a house that loves him. So get yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and let's begin.
1: When the moon rose in the third northern hall, I went to the ninth vestibule to witness the joining of three tides. This is something that happens only once every eight years. The ninth vestibule is remarkable for the three great staircases it contains. Its walls are lined with marble statues, hundreds upon hundreds of them, tier upon tier, rising up into the distant heights. I climbed up the western wall until I reached the statue of a woman carrying a beehive, fifteen meters above the pavement. The woman is two or three times my own height, and the beehive is covered with marble bees the size of my thumb. One bee, This always gives me a slight sensation of queasiness, crawls over her left eye. I squeezed myself into the woman's niche and waited until I heard the tides roaring in the lower halls and felt the walls vibrating with the force of what was about to happen. First came the tide from the far eastern halls. This tide ascended the easternmost staircase without violence. It had no color to speak of, and its waters were no more than ankle-deep. It spread a gray mirror across the pavement, the surface of which was marbled with streaks of milky foam. Next came the tide from the western halls. This tide thundered up the westernmost staircase and hit the eastern wall with a great clap, making all the statues tremble. Its foam was the white of old fish bones, and its churning depths were pewter. Within seconds its waters were as high as the wastes of the first tier of statues. Last came the tide from the northern halls. It hurled itself up the middle staircase, filling the vestibule with an explosion of glittering ice-white foam. I was drenched and blinded. When I could see again, waters were cascading down the statues. It was then that I realized I had made a mistake in calculating the volumes of the second and third tides. A towering peak of water swept up to where I crouched. A great hand of water reached out to pluck me from the wall, I flung my arms around the legs of the woman carrying a beehive and prayed to the house to protect me. The waters covered me, and for a moment I was surrounded by the strange silence that comes when the sea sweeps over you and drowns its own sounds. I thought that I was going to die, or else that I would be swept away to unknown halls, far from the rush and thrum of familiar tides. I clung on. Then, just as suddenly as it began, it was over— The joint tide swept on into the surrounding halls. I heard the thunder and crack as the tide struck the walls. The waters in the ninth vestibule sank rapidly down until they barely covered the plinths of the first tier of statues. I realized that I was holding on to something. I opened my hand and found a marble finger from some far away statue that the tides had placed there. The beauty of the house is immeasurable, its kindness, infinite.
0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Reading with Joy. It has been fully I think nearly seven months since I have recorded a podcast. I've been busily working away on various projects but I am thrilled to be back on the podcast with you and particularly to be beginning one of my favorite traditions from the last four years which is hosting my summer book club Reading with Joy. For the last few years we have done Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lingle, Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, and Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And this year, after climbing the mountain of PhD work and finishing a manuscript, as I was contemplating what I wanted to do for the book club this summer, I immediately knew that it had to be Paranasi by Susanna Clark. I'll tell you more about the book club and how it's going to run, but I have to first introduce my first guest, which is Joel Clarkson, my brother. Welcome on the show, Joel.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So in the past, and this is how this will run this year too, the way that the book club runs is that I section off the book. So all of you listeners will read one section each week, and then I will post a podcast where I discuss that section with a guest. And then I'll post questions, which you can either use for your own in real life book club, or you can discuss with other readers on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. The obvious first guest that I had to have was you, Joel, (laughs) because we read this book out loud together last Mm -hmm. autumn. So you are the real OG book club member. (laughs) So it made sense to have you on the podcast to start off this series. What was your first experience of beginning Piranesi? What was your impression of it?
1: You know, it's funny, I really enjoyed it. We had just come back from being in the States, Mm -hmm. and uh, we're kind of settling back into uh, life again here. And we weren't under lockdown, but I had had to quarantine for 14 days. We both had, Mm -hmm. um, separately, because we had come back at different times. And, uh, you know, there was a certain amount of disorientation with that. And there was so much disorientation anyway in this year. And uh, I think going into it, I found it very compelling because it felt somewhat this is a weird thing to say, but familiar in its Mm. strangeness. But the strangeness, you know, this is the allure of this book, as I think will become clear very quickly. And for anybody reading it, there's such an allure, such an appeal, such a sense of a desire to sort of inhabit this Mm. space and inhabit this world and see through the eyes of the, the narrator who's telling the story. And yeah, I just, I was immediately taken with it.
0: I think that is just right to say that you are drawn into his world. And I think the thing that's odd about it is that, as you said, there's a sense of disorientation. So we just had this beautifully read first section of the first chapter. So hopefully that will draw you and you want to hear more. But you have this scene of him almost drowning, but then coming to this conclusion that he's been protected by the house. And so it's the sense of these poles between being disoriented and being safe between being alienated and being loved. There's this whole kind of tension throughout the book. Um, It's funny because, speaking of quarantine, so we had two separate quarantines because I came back earlier than you. And I stayed with my sister and her kids. And while I was in quarantine, I read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which is Susanna Clarke's first novel. And the reason there was so much hype around Piranesi when it came out was that Susanna Clarke had written this first gargantuan... I mean, it's like 900 pages, right? It's
1: very large, yeah. It's a very
0: large book about two magicians who bring back magic to England and it's this kind of pseudo history? That's not the word I want. I'm Fake history? It's, it's like called? a
1: parallel history. Basically.
0: A parallel there, that's the word I wanted. It's a <laughs> parallel history. So it's you read it and you're like, wait, were there actually magicians in England? Did I just like miss that? <laughs> and it's this it's elaborate and it's ironic and playful and magical and it was the perfect thing to read, you know, when you're stuck inside for two weeks. And I even in occasional moments when I was Babysitting, my two-year-old niece would just read bits out loud because she's at the phase where she was imagining things, and she even enjoyed that. So I had read that, and actually, I don't know if you remember this, but we started listening to that on tape together. You deny this, but I, I believe that it is true. <laughs> He's giving me a crazy face right now. We started listening to it on tape when we, when you moved to California in, like, 2014, whenever it came out.
1: Uh, well, possibly. Possibly. We I did, definitely listened we to We also
0: one. listened to I mean, Hunger Games, but I got, yeah. I got bored with...
1: Well, you know, I I actually, the way I first read it is I listened to it alone when I was driving up from a trip to Texas to Colorado one time, and I listened to the whole book on tape.
0: You did, and I didn't listen to the whole one, but I remember listening to part of it, because I very specifically remember driving through the crazy bits of Utah and (laughs) listening to the section in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell about... Driving through Utah. Sorry, we just had to pause because Joel doubts my veracity. really do. (laughs) But I remember driving through Utah. Why would I make up this memory? I
1: have driven through Utah, but not that route.
0: Anyway, driving through Utah or something very like Utah, and there's not a lot in the world that's like Utah. (laughs) um, Arizona. Moments. (laughs) Listening to the section in John and Stranger's funeral about the misty ships and how he ends you know the war at napoleon mm, anyway so, good. so it's a great thing so i just finished that and we heard that susanna clark was coming out with a new book and i was like great it's gonna be this another huge tome it'll take us the whole year and then she comes out with this small lonely mysterious little book that matched exactly kind of where we were in the world you know this kind of precise, bounded, lonesome little mm-hmm. world of mm-hmm. Paranasi.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. It's almost uncanny how much it, it resonates.
0: Yeah, and I sense. and I read that with many of the reviews. They said it was very suited to a world in lockdown. Yeah. You know, um, he becomes so, as you already see in this first chapter, so acquainted with his world, and he knows every bit of it. And Joel and I even had that experience this year with bird watching, I guess I really more had the experience <laughs> with bird watching. And in uh, case this wasn't evident, Joel and I lived together this year in St Andrews, Scotland. And so I got really into bird watching because there wasn't else a lot of other things mm-hmm, to get into. Mm-hmm. A lot um, of birds around, though. There were a lot of birds around in Scotland. And so there's just this familiarity of the expansiveness and yet the precision and boundedness of Paranesi's work. So let me get into a few more of the details of the book club. This particular book is divided into seven parts, so you have different names. They're not chapters, but they're like chapters. So You have Piranesi, I believe, is the first one, and then you have the other, and it goes on and on. So for each week, you will read one of these parts. If you're listening to this episode, you technically should have already read the first part, uh, which I have posted about abundantly on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. If you don't know about it, then... I'm glad I haven't bugged everyone on the internet yet.
1: And just to clarify even further, getting further down the rabbit hole, each part has quite a number of what look kind of like entries of, in yes. a journal or this sort of thing.
0: Because yeah. it's written as a journal. It's an yeah. epistolary
1: approach to it. Excellent, excellent way of describing it.
0: I believe the exact name for the kind of book that it is. <laughs> anyway, so... So today we'll be discussing the very first chapter, and I'm going to let Joel go on a walk in a minute, but I just wanted to bring him on to talk about this first section. But the premise of the book is, as you've seen in this first chapter, a man writing journal entries about his life in a house where he believes himself to be one of two living human beings. And he lives this very natural and industrious life of keeping himself alive with seaweed and various other industries and he has one friend who we'll learn more about in the next chapter called who he calls the other but is he really a friend this is a question we will explore mm. So, Joel, before before you take off to walk on the sea, and I take off to tell people what themes they should look out for in this book...
1: I want you to know I'm only going to walk beside the sea. I am <laughs> afraid to say I don't have the talent to walk upon,
0: but... Yeah, you're just really trolling me tonight.
1: <laughs> I guess I am.
0: I don't think all of my guests will be quite this, I'm so.
1: not. I'm not quite Piranesi's <laughs> level of talent.
0: Well, if you watch out for the tides...
1: Yeah, I know. That's the thing, yeah. isn't
0: it? Anyway... I was going to say, what did you enjoy about this book? And why would you tell people to keep reading it? Because it's very weird. I should preface this. It is a strange book. It is Um, a strange book. I have had several people be like, Joy, this book is very weird. It's a man writing journal entries about tides. And I'm like, yes, I know. That's why it's great. But it is very strange. But I think there's a lot of richness to get out of it. So acknowledging the strangeness, what would you say you love about it?
1: Well, I think, so we have to start with this kind of book by acknowledging its strangeness, but also just by letting it happen. Not trying to sort of like force it into a mold that makes sense. You know, Mm -hmm. this is a story told on its own terms, Mm -hmm. uh, in its own ways. And that becomes even more apparent as the story goes on in ways that I certainly will not talk about at this point, because it's much to be enjoyed along the way. But the thing that I, I think I would say about this book that I just so enjoyed is I really did get lost in it. And that's a funny thing to say for this particular book, because it is about this house, this expansive place, which I, you know, I won't, there's so so much mystery to it and so much room to be able to sort of live in yourself. And it's been a long time since I've read a book where I felt this lost in it, in, mm-hmm. a, in a good way, sort of just, I mean, I, I would say in some ways, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell felt that way. But almost that Lewisian or Tolkien-like, mm-hmm. Tolkien-esque feeling of just You just immerse yourself in it, see, Mm -hmm. as it were. And I love that.
0: I think that feeling lost in it is the right word because when we say that, we mean that we are absorbed in a book, but there's also a sense that you're lost and that you're never quite sure what's happening.
1: Yeah. And I I think that can be an off-putting thing because it feels like you don't know where you're going, but I think it's one of those things where the author asks you to, in a sense, trust them, that they're taking you on a journey that's meaningful and I think it's worthwhile trusting the author in this situation.
0: I absolutely agree. And I think that one of the things that makes it easy for me to trust the author is that the narrator, Piranesi, is so precious. He's so so precious. I have very rarely felt such an affection for a (laughs) character and a concern because he's so sweet and innocent. In Mm. his own ways, I'll talk about this more, but in his own way, he's very... Wise, Right. He could seem naive or primitive to us, but there's also these senses in which he's very clever. Mm. He knows how to dry his seaweed and keep himself safe and keep mm. himself mm. attuned to things. And he sees this beauty in the house, but he also, we have this feeling that something might be coming for him, mm. that we he needs to be taken care of. So I feel a deep affection for Paranesi, and I think that's (laughs) part of why I can give myself over to him. Very reasonable. Well, Joel, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. And thank you for reading to us. And I will let you go, and now I shall prepare everyone with some pre-reading notes and some themes they should look out for.
1: Excellent.
0: Now that Joel's on his walk, I want to give you a bit of an introduction to this book as we embark on the next seven weeks of reading it together. And I want to do that in two ways. First, I want to give you a literary introduction to the book, thinking about what influences nourish the imaginative world of Piranesi. And then the second is to give you two themes to have in your mind as we read together for the next seven weeks to kind of notice and think about and dig into. And those themes will be alienation and kindness. But first, let's talk about what books went into the building of the world of Piranesi. My friend Bose likes to say that Susanna Clarke is a master of pastiche. Now, of course, that could sound insulting, but I don't think that it is. I think that all good writers and artists have been nourished by the works of others. And something I particularly appreciate about Susanna Clark is that she's very open in talking about who inspired her, where her books kind of came from in her imagination, and what she's doing. She's very open about her process. And there's three names that I want you to have in your brain and maybe to go sniff around if you are curious about the themes that come up in this book. One is very obvious. It's C.S. Lewis. That's obvious from the beginning because you have this quote in the opening of the book from The Magician's Nephew. I am the great scholar, the magician, the adept, who is doing the experiment. Of course, I need subjects to do it on. There's lots of references to The Magician's Nephew in this. You can get a feeling for charm and the great expansive house. Although, of course, Paranese experiences the house as this kind and beautiful place, whereas Charn is not as much experienced that way. But there's lots of other little nods to Magician's Nephew, but also to other things in Narnia. So of course on the front cover you have this picture of a very Tumnus-like fawn, and there's several other references that seem to be referencing the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I think that these references are more than merely aesthetic. So she's not merely just calling up the image of Narnia for us, she's also helping us think about the themes that Lewis himself addressed. In an interview, she says very bluntly that the book is a, quote, critique of progress in the line of Owen Barfield and C.S. Lewis. We'll get more into Barfield in a minute, But what she means by that is she's referencing Lewis's work kind of thinking about a pre-modern imagination. So one of Lewis's greatest works academically was The Discarded Image, which talked about the influence of the kind of medieval cosmology. And I have actually several podcasts about that if you want to go back into my archives, one with Michael Ward and then one I think I did on my own. But the way that medievals kind of encountered the world according to this cosmological system with the seven heavens as being an ordered and shepherded place where the passing of the stars meant something and reminded us of God. And so he thought a lot about how the shift away from that to our solar system and to our more scientific understanding of the world was reshaping how we encountered it. And that created this kind of question, you know, do we just say, oh, it was so much nicer when we didn't know that the sun was at the middle of the solar system and try to reject scientific world? Or is there a way to recover that sense of meaning and intuitive relationship to the environment? And Barfield gets into that as well, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So Lewis is the first literary influence thinking about Narnia, but also about the themes of progress and imagination and relationship to creation. Another influence is Jorge Luis Borges, who is the Argentinian short story writer. It's particularly resonant with, if any of you have read Borges, you'll think of the Library of Babel. There's some real, or Babel as my friends here would say it, there's some real resonances there. I've been actually trying to brush up on my Spanish enough so that I can read it in Spanish, which probably Susanna Clark didn't even do, but reading this made me want to dive into some Borges's. Writing, and of course, he was Argentinian, so he wrote in Spanish. So there's a lot coming from that. And then finally, there's also some references to Samuel Taylor Coolridge, who I spoke with him on the podcast, which you will listen to next week, about uh, kind of these references to the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And I'm including uh, Coolridge with Barfield because, as Malcolm says, Barfield basically said what Coolridge said. But a little worse so we have these references to Barfield but we also have Coolridge who again is intensely interested about that experience with nature and our relationship to it and our relationship to each other and something that is really of concern to Coolridge is this sense of isolation that we can have from each other and from nature and Barfield particularly picked up on that relationship between ourselves and nature In his influential essay, The Rediscovery of Meaning, Barfield tries to account for what he calls the pure cussedness of the fact that, and this is a quote, the more able man becomes to manipulate the world to his advantage, the less he can perceive any meaning in it. So Barfield thinks that in the modern world, we've come to view the world in a very scientific way, right? Which is to reduce it to its smallest parts. So when we look at the world, we see lots of tiny parts which we can shift around and manipulate to our own devices. But that even as we've done that, even as we've gained a huge amount of knowledge, we've lost our sense of relating to it. So Barfield argues that when the scientific method kind of hardened into an epistemological outlook, so when it hardened it, this is what we know and this is all we can know, While the horizons of scientific knowledge kind of exponentially expanded, the horizons of meaning and relationship and our sense of the world being a communication of God's grace or of meaning or of significance began to contract. And he says that this ingrains in us, and I love this phrase, a habit of inattention. Now, as you start reading this, think about the other and think about his habit of inattention we see kind of set up in Piranesi and in the other, these two views of the world, right? The habit of inattention, the feeling of being locked out of some kind of meaning or significance, but having this scientific and specific knowledge versus this kind of more intuitive relationship with the world. And he calls this, this relationship with the world, Barfield does, original participation, And that's connected, we kind of think, to this idea of enchantment, which is first brought up in... There's a German sociologist named Max Weber, and he talks about how this is a very kind of famously articulated argument, which has many debates around it, but he talks about how supposedly prior to modernity, We kind of lived in an enchanted garden where we related to the world and it was intuitively meaningful and important. It communicated things about God. We were embedded in our environment, whereas in the modern world, we live in a scientific place where nothing means anything the same way. We see ourselves kind of separated from creation. So Susanna Clark, she of course is pulling particularly on Barfield's way of describing this, and she specifically articulates Piranesi as trying to kind of wrestle with this distinction between what barfield would call the original participation and our modern way of engaging with the world she says ancient peoples did not feel alienated from the surroundings in the way in which we sometimes do they did not see the world as meaningless they saw it as a great and sacred drama in which they took part Barfield called this idea original participation, and I have tried to describe this sort of relationship in Piranesi's attitude to the house. So we already see kind of this beginnings of this in this first chapter that we've read together, you know, that he, when he has this horrifying experience where he's almost washed away by the tides, he prays to the house and the house in his mind saves him, leading him to say the beauty of the house is immeasurable and its kindness infinite. And I think what's important to remember in this is that when we say enchantment or disenchantment, it's not about if the environment itself, it's changed. It's about if the person is able to perceive certain things in the environment. So Piranesi and the other inhabit the same space, but for Piranesi, it's this place of wonder and intuitive relationship. Whereas for the other, he feels like there's some lost power that we're looking for. I love the juxtaposition between Perinese and the other because Perinese, while in some senses he's kind of primitive and, you know, lacks what we might think of as modern knowledge of the scientific world, he thinks of himself as a scientist. But what's wonderful about Perinese is that somehow he manages to have this kind of scientific attitude without losing that sense of original participation. And of course, that's the ideal, right? That's the ideal that we'd be able to have scientific knowledge but not have it strip away all of our natural, intuitive, or what we assume should be natural, intuitive relationship to the world. I love the part where he's talking about cataloging all of the the house and everything in it. And he says, the enormity of this task sometimes makes me feel a little dizzy. But as a scientist and explorer, I have a duty to bear witness to the splendors of the world. So Piranesi has this wonderful relationship to the world that's intuitive and caring and gentle in a way that is, as we shall continue to see, kind of confusing to the other. So having set up those literary kind of influences, we have Lewis and Borges and Coolridge and Barfield setting up this idea of original participation, enchantment and disenchantment in the modern world, the pure cussedness of not being able to derive meaning from creation. I want to give you two themes to think about as you read through this book and they're related to each other. The first is one that we've already kind of been touching upon and that's the idea of alienation from nature, from each other, and from ourselves. So we've already talked a bit about the idea that somehow modern man is alienated from creation itself, that we kind of interpret it uh, according to its smallest parts, and that even as we're able to manipulate it, we perceive less and less meaning in it. I was thinking about this recently with the strangeness that we speak about the environment, right? We, if we were to put that in quotations, the environment. This is a good example of how. We act as though there is this thing called the environment, and then there's ourselves, as though we are a quite separate entity from the environment. And of course, if you were to think about that for a minute, it's really quite irrational, right? We are human beings. We are creatures. Um, We live in the environment. Our bodies are made up of the stuff that the environment is made up of. But we have this kind of way of thinking of ourselves in relationship to the environment as though there's us and there's nature rather than thinking of nature as as having kind of an embedded reciprocal relationship to nature. And that reflects this sense of alienation from nature that Susanna Clark is talking about. And I think that while it can feel dangerous to talk about these ideas, dangerous is maybe not the right word, but maybe idealistic, right? We can talk about re-enchanting the world. And a lot of times when we say that, we mean, wouldn't it be nice if we just really thought fairies existed? And... I'm not totally convinced that they don't, but the idea is that we can't just fix, you know, the environmental problems by being a little bit more idealistic about the world. But on the other hand, there is something true to the fact that the way we imagine the world and the way we imagine ourselves and relationship to it, the language we use, the metaphors we use to describe it, does shape the way we engage with the world and the way we treat it. I was thinking of this recently when I read uh, Pope Francis' encyclical on The environment, and there's a section where he's talking about St. Francis, and it reminded me so much of Piranesi and the way he describes Francis engaging with it. This is what he says with the world. He says his St. Francis's response to the world around him was so much more than intellectual appreciation or economic calculus. For to him, each and every creature was a sister united to him by the bonds of affection. Such a conviction cannot be written off as naive romanticism. This is the part that I think is important. For it affects the choices which determine our behavior. If we approach nature and the environment with this openness to awe and wonder, if we no longer speak the language of fraternity and beauty in our relationship to the world, our attitude will be that of masters, consumers, and ruthless exploiters, unable to set limits on our immediate needs." But by contrast, if we feel intimately united with all that exists, then sobriety and care will well up spontaneously. And I think of Piranesi here. What his relationship to the house is spontaneous and intuitive. The poverty and austerity of St. Francis was no mere veneer of asceticism, but something much more radical. A refusal to turn reality into an object to be used and controlled. I thought this was such a perfect... Kind of way to think about Piranesi and the idea of alienation. Piranesi is not alienated from his environment, but he does have a little bit of that, as Pope Francis describes of Saint Francis, that aestheticism, right? Uh, Which means kind of an austerity that you choose not to do things, you know, Piranesi doesn't live a very luxurious life. He's always catching fish and counting things and making sure he's all in order, making sure he has enough fuel. But this is kind of a picture of that austerity and poverty that comes from awe and wonder of seeing oneself as being in relationship with nature and not being a part of it. That we were placed in the garden, as Genesis says. That that was our natural and fitting relationship to the world, was to be a part of this world. But... This question, of course, this sense that we should belong, comes from the fact that we oftentimes feel like we don't. And throughout this book, there's a theme of alienation. So while Piranesi, of course, has a relationship that is intuitive with creation, with the house, we also have this moment of of scariness in this first chapter where he almost gets swallowed up by the waves. And that's a picture of the fact that nature can be alienating to us because it is dangerous or frightening. But also that we can be alienated from it by not being able to perceive the beauty in creation, not being able to perceive what is there. And we'll see more of that in next week's chapter. And all of that is, again, her kind of exploration of this idea. But of course, that's not the only kind of alienation we can have. We can also have alienation from other people. Something that's interesting, of course, in this book is that there's a way in which it's very lonely. Piranesi believes himself to be one of only two people in all the world, and that's why he has these elaborate rituals with the bones, right? That he's honoring all the humans that have come before him, and this kind of—it's almost like a natural or a a natural religion, just a, a primitive response to the sense of there being holiness in the world and holiness to our lives. So there's a sense that Paranesi is very lonely and perhaps we will come to see some senses of alienation from the people around us. So this leads us to ask throughout the book, what causes us to be alienated from the natural world? What causes us to be alienated from others? And what causes us to be alienated from ourselves? And I can't say much more because I don't want to give anything away. But the opposite of that and the other theme that I want you to look out for in this book Is the theme of kindness. Now, if you were to look up a definition of kindness, it would very simply be the quality of being friendly, generous, and considerate. That's kind of the carte blanche, you know, Merriam Webster definition of kindness. And the reason I pick up this word, of course, is that it's the ending of this very first, which will become an important phrase in this book, the ending of the very first section where he says, The beauty of the house is immeasurable, its kindness infinite. I think kindness is a really interesting word and an interesting idea. So, if we think of being generous and considerate, and often we associate kindness also with a sense of doing something that doesn't, in which the person who receives it isn't going to owe anything. It's a kindness, it's thoughtful, it's considerate, and it's not something that causes you to be indebted. And this relates to the original etymology of kindness. I learned this from reading a book that I picked up recently called The Kindness of God by Janet Soskis at Cambridge. And in it, she writes that the Middle English word for kind and kin, meaning family, were the same. To say that Christ is our kind Lord, this is a quote from her, is not to say that Christ is tender and gentle, although that may be implied, but to say that he is our kin, our kind. I thought this was really interesting and so I dug a little bit deeper into it and if you go on to I believe it was online etymology dictionary it talks about the old English word which is something like gekind. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong and it comes from the old English word that means class, sort, or variety or another word for that would be nature, kind, or race. So it's the kind of thing that you are and it's also related to Kind, which is family. And so the Proto-Germanic also comes from a word meaning family or race or to give birth or beget. So kindness has this relationship with family, with being kin, which means that when we're kind to someone, the reason we have the sense that we don't owe someone is that we kind of owe our kindness. We treat people who are our kind in a particular way. And the reason I pick up on this is that kindness, this kind of kindness to be in kinship, and relationship, to give without owing because you are my kin, my kind, is the exact opposite of alienation, where alienation is experiencing someone as other, as different, as separate, as alien. Kindness is warmth and tenderness because I recognize you as being my kin, my kind. It's also associated with meaning things like noble deeds, but I think that comes specifically from this idea of we do things for those who are our kind, those who are, who belong to us, from whom we are not alienated. It reminds me of a phrase that you'll find over and over again in scripture, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. And that's this phrase, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving Kindness. Now, of course, we translate that as loving kindness because we have this word meaning kindness or or kin or family, that there's this sense of warmth and tenderness because of relationality, because of our closeness. But the Hebrew word for that is actually chesed, which is a very important word, which is often translated loving kindness, but it means love between people, devotional piety towards God, And this sense of attachment, an intense chosen attachment. And that God has chosen this attachment, this chesed, this devotion to us, that God attaches himself to us as our kind. And I pick up on that because I think all of these words are kind of the opposite of alienation. Kindness, knowing yourself to be embedded, to belong, to be related to, to be not alien to those around you, is the opposite of this alienation um, that we sometimes experience in the world. And though there are experiences of alienation in Piranesi, I think what struck me most was a sense of kindness. We see that in Piranesi. We see that in other areas of the book that I won't describe because I don't want to give anything away because it's a book that you have to experience for yourself. But I think both of these pop up. And I think that's part of why it was such a touching book to me is that I think we live in a time that is profoundly alienated and that is in profound need of kindness, not just in a touchy-feely good way, but in a sense of recognizing our kinship, our brotherhood and sisterhood, our relationship to each other, to the world and to God. And as I read it, you know, I was reading it, as Joel said, we were in the midst of lockdown and that profoundly alienating sense of just not being able to see people. But that personal isolation that we were all experiencing, I think was also mirrored in the profound alienation that has been occurring long before these past few years, but I think deepened by the last few years of this alienation and the separation and this intense kind of division that comes in our culture as well. There's a sense of inability to recognize each other as kin, to be able to recognize... How we even think or treat one another, and that there's an increasing sense of alienation in society at large, but also the continued pressing sense of alienation from our natural world. And so I think reading this and seeing, I saw myself in the alienation that he experienced, but I also found this beautiful comfort in the way that Piranesi relates to the world, and this kind of question that comes into my head, which is could I see the world that Piranesi sees? Could I relate to the world as though the world is beautiful and its kindness infinite? Is that possible for us? Or are we stuck in this alienated way of encountering the world? And what would it mean for that kindness, that beauty, that infinite beauty, to get deep into our bones? That's, I think, the question that this book asks, and I can't wait to explore it with you. So I think I'll end us here today But I would encourage you to go on and check out the questions. I will post some discussion questions on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. But I also would profoundly encourage you to start your own reading club, even if it's just with one person. Get together with somebody every week for coffee. Go to the park and discuss the chapter. Have someone over for tea at your house or for lunch. Make your friends come over for dinner. Do something together. Be kind to one another do not be alienated and i would hope it would make me greatly delighted if this book club was a way of bringing people together to discuss these things that i think are very important and to experience this book which is beautiful so that's how it'll work listen to this episode read the chapter every week listen to this podcast and then discuss the book both with your friends on the interwebs or with anyone who will listen so with that I leave you all come back next week ready to read section two the other and to discuss it with me and the poet priest and rock and roller Malcolm Gite I leave you with Piranesi's final words may they sink deep into your soul the beauty of the house is immeasurable its kindness infinite